Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know, and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Today, we're talking to Denny Charred, founder of DC Finance Family Office and High Net Worth Community, which has more than 2,000 high net worth individuals, family offices and investors who collaborate with each other worldwide. We're diving deep on how he has built this network and learnings for VCs fundraising and engaging with family offices and high net worth individuals. Want to be on top of who the best up and coming emerging VCs are in Europe and maybe even invest with them? Pre-register for our newsletter on theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know. Benny, welcome to the show and thank you for taking the time to talk with us here at EUVC. Thank you for having me. We're super happy you're joining us. But before we start going into any topics in depth, we really would love to give our listeners a quick overview of your background and what brought you to do whatever it is that DC Finance does. So do let them know exactly what you are about. Thank you. This is going to take just 30 minutes now. Uh, <laughs> okay, we'll mute and we'll come back <laughs> in a while. <laughs> First of all, I've been to both uh, Lisbon and Denmark. So I've been in both your countries, which are amazing. Beautiful. Yeah, so uh, DC Finance is everything but what our name actually sounds to people. So DC <laughs> is not Washington because it's my initials and finance. And we're not an asset manager either. It's just that when we started, we started by doing financial conferences in Israel, uh, institutional investment and corporate finance. And at some point, we learned about the world of the family offices, which was basically a parallel universe. You know, you usually think, hey, people are wealthy, you know, what issues might they have? And then I hooked up with two very known families in Israel, understanding what they're all about and what worries them. And we built the first conference there. But maybe that's for another question. You asked what we do at the end of the day. So that's how we got into the world of family offices. And today we're bringing both high net worth individuals and family office executives together around the world, in the States, in Canada. We're in New York, Miami, Houston, Dallas, Chicago. We're in Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto, London, Tel Aviv, and the UAE, Abu Dhabi and Dubai, bringing them together by bringing phenomenal speakers, by making sure it's private, and by talking about everything they care about, from investments to, believe it or not, topics like depression, marrying into wealth, and things that you wouldn't believe that people share on our stages. We do those by conferences, private dinners, and online sessions that, you know, I used to be a journalist where I interview major families each and every week for many, many weeks. It started, obviously, because of COVID, and I like to say, if COVID will not kill you, just try to watch some of the webinars out there. Not yours. <laughs> so I really took the journalistic past and used that to interview um, families and others that are seeking capital, etc. So we do those like once or twice a week. Basically, that's what we do bringing families together for mutual support, friendship, business, and learning. Just for uh, purposes of understanding the scale of what we're talking about, what's the size of the network we're talking about? Do you have that really uh, accounted for <laughs> of how many people does DC Finance reach in its network? keeps on growing, right? Because only this year, well, actually now we are in four new destinations out of the 10 I gave you there. Yeah. I would probably say several thousands of families are in our network. And throughout the year in person, we meet probably 1,500 or so. Because, you know, every conference is like 100, 100 to 200. In Israel, yeah. it's 400. So yeah. I would say that's about 
the number of folks we're meeting. Maybe I would add that we're also unique in the sense that we are the only group in the world that came out of Israel. It means a lot of things, but one of those is technology and innovations. We understood very early on that families care about technology. Or, you know, I don't know a family that's not invested in technology. It doesn't matter where they come from. They have some exposure. We understood it was an edge we have. So every conference we do opens with a tech and innovation session. And those are held like, you know, the four seasons of the world and, you know, nice places. And we also have a sub-conference dedicated just for technology and innovation that we hold with the world's leading legal firms like Baker McKenzie in London, Reed Smith, Eric Feinstein, Clifford Chance in New York, Fask and Steichman and Osler and others in Canada. And that makes it the only conference in the world about innovation and technology for family offices. So I guess we're unique in that respect, which means many of my families are into technology. I wanted to start off with that question just to give our listeners an idea of what's the scale of this we're talking about. How does one go about building kind of an investment-centered community? I thought it was really interesting that you brought up one or two topics automatically. One of them was keeping things private. And it's really interesting that that's one of the first things you bring forward. So maybe let me give you the chance to kind of share your thought about how to go about building this community and what matters to them and how do you cater to that? Beautiful question. And I'll answer you. You mentioned investment-related group. I wouldn't see us that way. I think that there are millions of those, millions of those that are trying to say, oh, we are a firm for investment. We are this and that. Millions running after the same families. And what happens is maybe some are doing a good job. Most families would look at it and say, okay, you know, I'll send my third in command to check it out. You know, and that's it. What we've built, and this answers your question, and I learned that very early on, Imagine yourself an ultra high net worth individual, okay? For fourth generation, what are you worried about? Your investments, estate planning, you want to preserve your wealth. But what about your kids? What, what, what about the fact that your kid is always in the shadow of the father, that he made billions, and now everybody look at you and say, oh, you're, you need to prove yourself, right? I don't want to tell you what happened to the son of John Lennon. What problems comes with wealth? When you marry somebody, is it because they love you or because you're wealthy? You know that... New wealth, what I like to call your world, startups, people that had an exit, right? They don't have what old wealth, Rockefeller, Dell have, right? They went to the right schools. Usually they were taught how to deal with wealth. They have the right advisors for ages. They are prepared. Not that they don't have issues and problems and challenges. They have loads, but they are. You know that I spoke to a family that did uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of exit in Canada like huge, one of the biggest in Canada. And you know what the wife told me? The minute we did the exit, half of my friends disappeared because they hate us now. Another group suddenly became very close to us, too friendly. We didn't know which service provider to go to. Everybody was knocking at our doors. Obviously, you know, the guy that uh, your CPA and lawyer are not relevant anymore. You have now a new world, but who do you go to? And you think, oh, what's the problem? You go and you check it and you're online. No, they don't know that. By the way, many entrepreneurs, as you know from your world, are also very unique because they already run to the next project. When you see wealthy people in other segments, right, real estate or this, usually once they do their exit, they are getting fat. They're going to the yacht club. They are taking it easy, enjoying their life. How many entrepreneurs do you know that after the first exit did that? I don't know one. Maybe one. That's clearly not the tendency. They all go to the next venture and the next thing, they, it's in their blood. So the challenges are different. And my point is, when you discuss, to answer your question, the things that they really care about, that really keep them up at night, then they come close to you. If I'm talking about depression, suicide, things they care about, they come to us. Then you build a real community. And then we also talk about investment. But we already have their attention. 
Many forums just say, oh, we're investment forum. That's way beyond that. Investment is one part of it. Obviously, you don't want to bring crap to your, you know, whatever it is, conference or meeting, you know, just because they pay you. But there's way more. I see two things. One is that firms that are far away from my world or family offices have no idea what they're doing, right? So if you're UBS and Wells Fargo, you, they know what they're doing. Trust me, they have the right people. They navigate my space, which, by the way, unfortunately, most of the players in my space are f- horrible if you're lucky and fraud if you're not. Very few are doing a good job. But the thing is, they don't have the tools to evaluate, right? So if you're a fund, as great as you are, you're talented, but you come to my space, you see somebody writes, we are the biggest family office conference, and you don't even realize that family offices, you don't even use that terminology. Big? What do you mean big? They want small and unique and private. But they don't understand that, and they go after that. So they don't have the tools to really navigate my space, right? Yeah. So that's a problem we're seeing. Let me grab something that you said, which is really interesting, because you said we talk about investment, but we talk about many other things that matter to these individuals and to these families. And you gave two super interesting examples, depression, kids, you know, how to um, basically cater to their needs and their rising challenges. Could you highlight from a non-investment which is typically what we focus on, but I think it's interesting to learn more about your network and the type of people that you collaborate with on a daily basis. What are other topics that you would highlight as things that recurrently come up and that you are trying to help these families and individuals with? By the way, don't get me wrong. We have some sessions that are very, very uh, targeted, right? A VC that raises capital, a real estate firm, and then you know that's the session. It's about real estate, a private dinner about that, and that's the only thing they come to listen to. But at the conferences... We obviously, like you say, we deal with that. Also with some online sessions we're doing because our online sessions are both for those who raise capital and both for, you know, consultants and interviews with families. Again, if we take that family, the tech family, they didn't exit, they don't even know what they need, right? If you look at entrepreneurs, they are strong, they're running to the next project. They don't even realize that they actually need to, wait a minute, plan your next gen and all of that. Your son is not you. You are a go-getter right? Like the first generations of families, you fought to get to where you are. Some people lived in poverty. You know, many of the biggest families in the world, Sheraton, Silverstein, Sam Zell, most of the families read their story, they came from poverty. And the first generation said, I'm going to kill it. I'm not going to be poor like my parents. And that drove them. Second generation still sees that, right? It's his parents, even though they were growing into wealth, so they're balanced. But what happens in third generation? They don't even see the hard work that was way back then with the grandpa, they're confused, they're lost. So when you deal with those topics, when you give them a place to hear about it, when you connect old wealth and new wealth to talk to one another and learn from one's experience, then you create a real community that listens to you. And that's what you need, their attention. And again, if you are a high net worth individual, where would you go now? To another forum of, oh, we'll give you 10 investments you should look at or... You know what? I have issues with my son. I kind of neglected him to build my business. You know, it was the price I paid. And I think I'm losing something here. But these guys are going to talk about it because there's, you know, a forum of other families that will share it. We get families to share things that you wouldn't believe with other families, for instance. Like when I brought a family that talked about marrying into wealth, she was a billion-dollar family. He was just a guy like, <laughs> like us. And they actually talked about what that, is, that means. The documents he signed, the cultural change... You know, and people tell me, how do you get them to talk about it? Why? So if you build the right community, they share, and it just 
grows like that. We had a chat about this last time, and I'm curious to um, ask it again. Uh, you have a worldwide network, so you shared with us just now. Do you see differences? Europe, US? Beyond the fact that in the UK, they drive on the wrong side of the street. <laughs> Aside <Yeah>. from that. <laughs> Aside from that, and their change is too heavy, right? <laughs> Loads of changes. It's amazing. It's amazing. First of all, geographically, right? When you talk about co-investing, what's that idea, right? Let's go to your world. Your listeners are tech people. Let's say I'm a cyber guy and let's say you're a blockchain guy, right? I have no idea about blockchain. I actually think it's crap. <laughs> But I know there's money to be made there. And you're telling me, Danny, it's not crap. I know how to make money there. It's my thing. And I'll help you with crypto. Then we are both on the same place. We're both wealthy individuals that use each other's knowledge in different sectors, and we diversify, right? So in Europe, the problem is that there are many Europeans. No, I'm kidding. The problem that you guys have in Europe, and I come from, obviously, not far away, the difference in cultures, right? You got the Swiss, you got the Nordics, you got the Russians, different worlds in one continent, right? Yeah. In the U.S., though, no, you don't have that problem. Everybody came from the same place, more or less, West Coast, East Coast, not huge difference. So it's way easier to co-invest because we are like-minded. When you go to Canada, same thing. Europe is more complicated that way. So for instance, this is one thing that I can tell you that's really different the way people work. By the way, even business-wise, I'm sure I'm now burning many, many bridges, but I always do that. When you look at somebody in Belgium, you know how many times I saw a Swiss bank's email that was, you know, if his name was Van Gulven Van Holten, That's going to be his email address, van.hulgen, because that's his pride. Now, I don't care about your family heritage right now. I'm trying to write you an email. In most cases, you probably won't get my email because I make 10 spelling mistakes. Why in America, if my name is John Holmes, I will just write J. Holmes to make it easy, you know? So there are many, by the way, changes, right? But I'm talking about the old school guys. It's, it's, it's funny. The way they think is differently. When I look at my steering committees, if I put my UK steering committee with my US steering committee, they'd kill one another. <laughs> if you look at the UAE, the UAE has other issues. Don't forget, it's a different culture, right? If you're supposed to usually take your eldest son to lead the business, but what if he's not the right person? Now you have clashes of issues here. To answer your question, tremendous differences between cultures. Even when I build my conferences, each one has a steering committee. Even in Houston and Dallas, we have different steering committees. So, absolutely. I mean, you see that. I see major differences between the state of minds of people, but some things stay the same. You know, growing yeah. in wealth, managing it, next generation being a little bit lost, even though they have all the money in the world. By the way, when you look at the Asian money in China, that's first generation money, right? That's pretty new. They face the same issues, even though it's the Chinese culture, very, very different than the Western, but they face the same issues that they need to learn. What do we do now? And they come to the U.S. or to Europe to learn how it should be done. And they have the same issues. They have the same, you know, problems within the family, right? Because when you start a family business, let's say it's me and you, okay? We are brothers. Easy. Next generation, we already have, you have two kids, I have four kids. Now it's seven and I get married, you get married. Mm, it starts to get a little bit sensitive, but we're good. Third generation, this guy's wife will tell him, you should be the manager, And then that lady, will, her husband will tell her, you should get a bigger chunk of the pie. 
then the shit's yeah. starting hitting the yeah. fan. Yeah. So that shit fan is on. <laughs> in every culture, you see that because we're all human beings. I know that you don't want to talk too much about investing inside the community, but now you're on the European VC, so we have to ask you this question. What is the sentiment that you in general see from the family offices and the way the VCs fundraise? And maybe also if you can speak to that, the cultural differences that you're seeing there. Here, I wouldn't say that I'm bothered by cultural differences. It doesn't matter where you come from, right? Because Israel, for instance, is uh, bringing some of the best funds and startups yeah. in the world. And that's a culture that's different than all cultures. I don't even think that as Israelis, they are close to the Europeans or the Americans. They're somewhere in between. So it's not the culture that matters here. I think at the end of the day, a family office wants to see a good investment. Just like any fund would tell you they tick the same boxes. They want to see good management first, right? They will not invest in a great product with bad management. So there are things that are cross-cultural. As a family office wants to invest in the VC, they want to see something interesting, a good story. Obviously, if you got good ROI, good team that manages it. That's what they want to see. But you know what? Unlike institutional investment that would always say, oh, you don't have a track record of five years, forget it. Here, even the young funds have a great opportunity because families have the patience to understand, wait a minute, you are a first-time fund, but that means you're a go-getter. You're going to fight hard than the guys that already have lots of wealth. And I like your story and I trust you. I look at you and I trust you somehow. So even those that would be tougher to go after you know, more established institutional wealth would find it easy with the family offices. And what I can advise them, the mistakes that CVCs you know, maybe do, I think they should stress if they have anything that families care about, like impact investing, like doing good to the world, they should mention that, right? Because most institutional investors, besides maybe the Nordic institutional investors, the only ones that care about the world, want to do ROI at any cost. That's the bottom line. Now everybody goes, no, you're wrong. That's how it is. And families that already made their wealth, they're like, hey, hey I, I'm good. I'm good. I want to make more money, but not at every price. You know, I have things I believe in now, philanthropy, saving the ocean, whatever it is I want. So if you have something positive like that, explain it. Second thing, you're not talking all the time to professionals, right? Remember that. So some of the family offices that do healthcare, understand it inside out. You can talk at any level, they'll get you. But many others might be considering it. They don't get it as much. Don't do something too technical. Tell a story. Excite people, right? So when a fund presents itself, I always, when I look at their pitches, I'm trying to make it more exciting. What kind of interesting case studies do you have? What different approach do you have? And if you don't have different approach, do you do something they care about more than others? And I did an entire session about it of several hours about how the do's and don'ts when you reach family offices. So it's not like that, that I can explain that fast. But in general, once they do find the family offices, they need to learn how to go after them, right? I think many times funds are a little bit arrogant because they come from an arrogant world of we are all superstars in technology. And they're forgetting sometimes that the people they're after are like not impressed by anything. They saw Hamilton before uh, uh, Manuel Miranda did. Everybody are running after them. So, you know, to understand these guys are sophisticated, they have a lot of wealth, take it easy. So that's a little bit of what I can mention here that I think funds should look at when they're going after family offices. You just shared some do's and don'ts. And I know there is some content that you already created on that front. So we'll actually ask those links and share it in our episode notes. I'm curious to hear your thoughts of what do you see your role being in DC Finance? 
in bringing together these two worlds? Is there a role for you to play between VCs and your network? What is that and how are you going about it? Is it just about informing or is there more than meets the eye? No, no, no. That's, that's way more than that. Again, when we got out of Israel from a small city called Yahoo, that even in Israel, people don't know where it is, and you go to New York City, you better have an edge. So we sat down and thought, okay, what do we have that my competitors don't? Yeah. And the first thing was startup nation, technology and innovation, That's something you're known for, go for it, right? So we learned that world inside out. We advise when we have a sponsor, a VC presenting at a conference or doing a dinner or anything like that, how they should go about it, how they should write their pitch, what to stress, what not to stress. And again, it's many times you see people that can talk. You know, I had a session with Blumberg Capital from the States. He knows how to talk. I can tell you I saw other funds that are brilliant that the guys should not talk beyond their very close family. And I saw companies where the entrepreneur spoke on stage and I was like, you know, you should sit in the basement and do your inventions. Let your business development guy speak. So if you know how to talk, talk. If you don't know how to talk, get interviewed. There are ways to put people who don't know how to talk to talk. So what I'm saying is they need to understand their weaknesses, the strength of their uh, speakers and present it in a very engaging way. I had a fund that did two sessions. Uh, I hope they're not listening. One session, they raised millions. The other, not so much. It could be because of luck. On that day, there were great people. On that day, they had less people that were less excited. But there were two different speakers, two different partners. The one that didn't raise was way more established than the other guy. With years of exits, and but a little bit boring. And the other guy that spoke, who's way younger, is like 20 years younger, he engaged them. He talked about crypto. He told them... Here is what happened at Walmart when people stole credit cards. And here is your vulnerability. People were like sitting with their eyes all over the place. Wow, wow. And they understood, wow, this guy gets it. He loves it. And when you have passion in your story, that is part of the game. So I, I have no idea, by the way, which questions I'm answering you, but I'm answering you somehow. <laughs> It's really interesting because you're basically double downing, so to speak, on the message that it often is not the financial performance slash track record that will tip the scale. It's the passion, it's the alignment and the belief on what you're trying to build in the long term. And I, I think that's super interesting because that contrasts with institutional investors in the VC space, right? And I want to add one more thing that people don't get, again, that come from outside of my world, which is you guys, mainly the VCs, right? Sometimes they think it's a one-time thing, right? I go to a conference, I speak, and if I didn't raise money, then it failed. No, you don't understand the mindset. You know, I had a family, a billion-dollar family that invested $1 million. That's all. They're a billion-dollar family in uh, real estate, but after they due diligence, the hell out of them for a year. Why? Because it's their money. It's not other people's money. It's their money. And their approach was, doesn't matter how much I'm worth. Let's see what you do with one million, then we'll talk. That guy today sits on the board of the guy's wife's company, that, that person that is a partner in that fund. That's how great things can become when you work with family offices. They are way more than capital, right? But my point is, you need to take time to penetrate that space. Some families act fast, some take it easy, and then might come back to you after half a year. You know, I had another fund, you asked me the do's and don'ts an Israeli fund that introduced him to a family that was a little bit interested in him. And he scared them the hell away because they just said, hey, I would uh, love to talk to you. He sent them, oh, 10 presentations, attachments. The first thing I asked him was, how did you get married? I mean, when you went on a dating site, the minute she said, okay, I'll meet you for lunch, you were like, hey, hey I do this, this, and that, and maybe, maybe we can move in together. I mean, how do you, how do you, who taught you how to, 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 to you know, to, to, 
to court. <laughs> right? Right? So yeah, same thing. Yeah, yeah. You don't you don't jump on somebody. Let them ask you for more information. Let them ask you for a presentation. Take it easy. It's actually a little funny, uh, Danny, because <laughs> it goes a bit against much advice out there. So we have, I would say, Operators Winter Meets book, for example, which I think is growing to become quite a uh, textbook on fundraising. And there he clearly states, you want to get to know as quick as possible. Or yes, we're interviewing him next week as well. And I'm sure he wouldn't say, nah, nah, just whip out everything uh, as soon as you can. That is not his advice. But, you know, that single standing advice can quickly lead managers to jump the gun with family offices. But I'm curious, how would you say the approach should be? When should managers start reaching out? Give us some insights here. First of all, you need to uh, look at two different kinds of entities. One is the high net worth individuals, the next gen or the father or the daughter or whatever, and one is family office executive. Yes, if I'm a family office executive of a family office that does healthcare, don't waste their time. Yes. Then once you get a connection, you can send them whatever you want. They don't waste time. That's fine. There, I agree with that approach. But when you're reaching the next generation of Rockefeller and you're in touch with her and she wrote you, okay, you know what, maybe we can talk. Wait a minute, just take it easy. Don't bombard them with presentation because then it'll be like, okay, it's another guy that's just trying to sell me something. By the way, another thing that's very interesting about families that relates here, you just need to understand, you know, human beings, right? If I'm an institutional investor that does uh, sectors one, two, three, then that's all I'm going to look at. If I'm a family office executive that does one, two, three, that's all I'm going to look at. Okay. So let's say I'm doing healthcare. The family told me to do healthcare. If you're not healthcare, I will not talk to you ever. You know how it's constructed, right? There's the family members. If they're wealthy enough, they build a family office, which is the more, you know, that's the arm that actually does the investments. And they tell them, go after real estate and healthcare. Let's say it's the Dell family. Okay, let's say that's their family office. Now, you're doing 3D glasses. They don't do 3D glasses. Their family office executive would never talk to you. Would say, get the hell out of here. We do healthcare. Well, what do you want from me? Now, let's say you go to that Dell member and say, hey, 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 Patricia, listen. I know you guys don't do this, but would you mind putting those glasses on for five minutes? See, you know, uh, just check it out. And if I'll do the same to you, I don't know what you invest in, but if I'll come to you right now and do the same with you, you'll you'll be like, okay, oh, whatever, let's try. And then she has a chance to change your mind. It's called passion investment. You can be, wow, this is amazing, right? And then you'd go to the family office and say, guys, check these guys out. I don't care. We don't do 3D glasses. I love it. That's the future, and I'm going to be in it. So the only people that you can persuade to do anything are the families. That's why I love to bring mostly the family members. They are the hardest people to find, but they are the ones that can do anything because they are the wealth. They don't work on behalf of someone. Uh, What was the name of the company that does the huge Israeli exit? I forgot the name. Ah, They do the, you know, in the cars, that thing that tells you how far you are from the next car. One of the biggest exits in the world. I forgot the name. I have a blackout. They told me, that no VC touched them because they didn't tick the boxes because they did something that wasn't falling in. Families would treat it differently. So when they came and met the family member, he was like, you know what, I get it. I love it. I will tell my family office executives to check you guys out. In the VC industry, you know, we are seeing that capital has never been more of a commodity. (laughs) And I'm curious, have you seen a growing interest for VC as potential investment from the family office space? Or do you think it's kind of the same, nothing has changed? What are the trends there? Have you seen any interesting shifts in the last two, three years? I think that obviously COVID got people more to understand the importance of technology. Healthcare, online, I mean, everybody was shoved into this even if they didn't like it. So I think more people understand the importance 
and the future and got into this. And when you're looking at VCs versus direct investing, it depends on the person. If you're an expert, if your family got their wealth from healthcare, most of them would invest directly in healthcare. They don't need any fund to tell them what to yeah. do, most yeah. cases. Yeah. But many others want to diversify. These would go to funds that get that space. So I think that, yeah, more people are aware the technology is important and allocate more. But again, those that understand that space, I have a family that does blockchain investment. He does it himself. No funds. He invests, he checks the, the companies, he does it himself. It all depends on the level of knowledge of a family of a specific sector. So that hasn't changed. If I don't understand cyber enough, I will go to those who do, pay them their fees, let them do the job. We are running out of time, but we still have some. <laughs> and so before moving on to the last segment, a lot of our listeners are emerging managers. So they are either fundraising for their first fund or getting ready to start fundraising for the first fund. What would you say to these guys? How can they collaborate with you, Danny? And uh, how can they get an opportunity to cater to the needs of these family offices and try to excite them with their mission? Well, again, I'm going back to dating and that's something people need to understand. You need to look interesting. If you have a unique thing about you, you should tell it. Even if you're inexperienced, maybe somebody on your board is and you can mention their name. Maybe your approach is different. Show what you've done so far. Even if you don't have track record of 20 years and you're a young guy out to get it, a lot of people would bet on you, would say, you know what, I like yeah. the energy of this guy. The first thing they would look at is trust. Do they trust you? Do you look like a Wall Street marketing overkill guy, which they will not touch in a million years? Or do you look authentic, down-to-earth, hard worker that would get it? Obviously, Madoff and many others managed to steal full families, like everybody, so that will still be there. But I think they try to build trust. You know, if you look at blockchain, you and I know that 90% of the ICOs back then were a joke or a hoax or whatever you want to call it. Some entrepreneurs, I will not mention their name, very famous multi-billionaires, took billions from investors, didn't do anything with it. I think, from my experience, that the family offices hardly were part of that. You know why? They're sophisticated. They understand, what I mean, this is a 20-year-old guy. He's got no management. He's got no story. He's, this is bullshit. And those that supported all those ICOs were the messes. The crowd, the people that don't have the tools to due diligence, look at it. Whenever there's a trend, they're there. Way before the institutional investors, cannabis, opportunity zone in the U.S., blockchain, they're always there. Don't get me wrong. They're fast learners, but they have experience. It's their own money. And unless it's the next gen that want to take a crazy adventure, they will get you and they'll see, do they trust you? Are you a guy that's going to run with the money? Are you serious or are you a joke? So I think... If you're a joke, don't go after the family offices. They'll get it. You'll be wasting money sponsoring my conferences because they'll they'll eat you alive. Ah, that's super cool, Benny. Time for the quick fire. We have to round it off. Are you ready for it? It's uh, 30, 60 seconds per question. Sure. All right. First question. What do you believe to be true about the family office space that most of your colleagues in the industry wouldn't agree with? I would say that it takes them time sometimes to make decisions, something others would not really uh, say. I remember you bringing up that it's not a one-night stand. <laughs> Last time we spoke, you said something funny like that. <laughs> That's exactly my point. It takes time to get the families. And again, most of the players, unfortunately, in my space, you know, they don't even bring the real families. So they're going to tell you that that's going to make it and that's enough. And you speak to them at a conference and you got it. You need to build a strategy to work with these guys. So I think some wouldn't agree with that, but that's how I think you should look at it. 
Okay, then the second one, this is even harder because it's <laughs> what's the most counterintuitive thing that you've learned in building community in the family office space? There are many groups in my spaces who try to take a commission and make money on the families. That's something we've never done. So I think whenever you try to push them into deals and shove things up the throat, you know, then you lose it. You lose the trust, you lose their attention, and they're like, oh, you're just another guy who's trying to make money here. Don't scare them. That's all I'm saying. You know, it's like, just don't blow it up. That's what I would say. Sometimes when you're over-marketing yourself, you're doing the exact opposite. When you see presentations by groups of how amazing they are and how many employees they are and what a beautiful office they have, when they look at the beautiful office, they say, why do you have such a beautiful office? You're spending my money on that office. <laughs> Absolutely right. All right, Danny, the last question. What can we expect in the future from Danny and DC Finance? Hopefully I'll sell my business because I'm tired of it. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, more destinations. We're getting into the U.S. Uh, next year, Vancouver, Montreal, uh, and Chicago, new destinations for us. This is uh, the first time I'm mentioning that. I'm sitting uh, with my friends at the Silverstein family, and we're working on a club. I don't want to say club, it's redundant, but a circle of families that would mix old and new, which is basically your entrepreneurs that had an exit with the old money that would be above 100 million or so that would be meeting one another and sharing ideas. So this is something very unique that I'm working on right now that would be beyond the conferences, a meeting place that would be both geographically interesting because we are both in the Middle East and Europe and North America and bringing together two groups that don't really connect. And even I'll say it quickly, even amongst the tech world, I see the traditional tech and I see blockchain, which are off the ground a little bit. They're like flying around. They don't mix. Talk to a, your blockchain entrepreneur, ask him who can introduce you. It's just blockchain guys. Same with the other guys. If they would mix, they could share investments. They could do impact investing together. They don't mix, and this is one of the things we're working on. That's very cool, Danny. Thanks for sharing. Keep us posted on whatever you guys develop and do in Europe. That's where we, our community is. That's where we're strongest. So if we can help in disseminating that message, we reach out. Next month, uh, November 22nd, our conference in London with Miss Sherry Blair as keynote and the CEO of the 49ers from LA flying over to London. So London, November 22nd. So that's as European as it gets, guys. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So be there. We will, we will share that in our network for sure. <laughs> Thanks a million, Danny. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.